You got that? So uh, I'm just looking across and I see a couple of the people over 50 are nodding their heads saying, yeah. People over 40 are saying, all right. And the young people are saying, where's the rap? So, you know, where's the rap bridge? Well, I don't know what's up with that. All right. So, but um, last week we talked about our passion for love. By the way, I'm Joe Davis and I'm the, the lead teaching pastor here for the garden. Um, we last week we talked about the fact that many of us are just in absolute love with our passions our desires, our sinfulness, our addictions, our lusts. We're in love with these things so much so that sometimes we're willing to do anything. And David, we cataloged, was willing to do just about anything to fulfill his lust. But sometimes, actually almost all the time, when we fall in love with those passions and those desires and those lusts and those addictions, when the consequences come full force, when they come around 360 right back in our face, we find out that the thing we love really hurts. The thing we love is very painful. And all of a sudden we're faced with the reality, maybe this thing wasn't so great. And so we're going to look at how Nathan the prophet confronts David after he clearly murdered Uriah, after he slept with Uriah's wife, and he murdered several other of his soldiers in the scheme that he set up so that Uriah would be killed. Probably, you know, it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that maybe 150 to 200 soldiers died in David's setup to murder Uriah to make it, you know, look like she's a widow so he could take his wife. So that's a pretty sad story. And so basically what we see happening in, and I'm not going to read the whole passage to you because it'll take too long, but I'm just going to kind of break it down for you what happens here, okay? <clears throat> what we learn from the last passage is that the child is born. This child that was, that was conceived in an adulterous fashion as David slept with another man's wife, this child was born. So we know that the scripture clearly says 
that David lived with this murder and this adultery and the stealing of this wife and the whole setup of all the soldiers he killed and the 150 to 200 widows he made that day to protect and to hide his sin, all the families he destroyed, he lived with it for at least nine months. The man after God's own heart, the king of God's people, a good guy who wrote all these psalms that are great and all powerful, right? And he worshiped God and all... He lived with murder and adultery and destroying 150 to 200 families for at least nine months. It could have been a year. It could have been two years. He lived with it for a long time. And we know this not only because the baby was born, but also because the old prophet Samuel is dead and now there's a new prophet, Nathan. So there's been a transition of prophets. There's been a transition of a lot of stuff here. How do you think Uriah's family felt about this man after God's own heart at this point? You know, Uriah's mom and dad. His immediate family, his cousins, his brothers. How do you think they felt about this king? This king chosen by God? Do you think they hated him? Do you think they despised him? They knew what happened. As a matter of fact, everybody knew what happened, but nobody was willing to live in the light and realize what was going on because they, hey, that's the king. Don't mess with the king. And so God begins to confront David. Am I losing my... You'll have to advance this for me because I don't think I'm getting a... Put the mouse back on the slide there. All right, so God begins to confront David. And here's how he does it, right? He uses a story about two men. And he, so Nathan comes to David and says, Hey, David, let me tell you a story. There's this servant in your kingdom, and he's a poor guy. But he's a good guy. He's a really good guy, and he serves you well, and he does everything he can for the kingdom, and he's a great guy. And he has one lamb. And this lamb is not like livestock that they raise it to kill it. It's like a pet. The kids love it. It sleeps in the house with them. They love this lamb. They adore this lamb. They cherish this lamb. This guy is a servant to a rich man in your kingdom. This rich man had a visitor come from far away, a wanderer, the scripture says. And he came in, and the rich man wanted to entertain him and have a big dinner, but he didn't want to kill one of his own thousands of lambs that he has. He has a ton of lambs. He has a big flock, God. But he didn't want to kill one of his own, so he went to his servant and said, Give me the lamb that you love. I'm going to slaughter it and feed it to my guests. You know, David, he could have taken one of his many, but instead of he took the one lamb that this poor servant of his loved, and he took this lamb, and he killed it, and he had a party with his friend who came from out of town. And the scripture says David was very angry. David was besieged with rage. And he says, this guy who stole this poor man's lamb, he must be killed. Who does this guy think he is? I want him executed. And so what God cleverly does in this story is that Nathan, through Nathan the prophet, he clearly reveals everything. He murdered a lamb. He stole a wife. He disrespected a faithful servant. All these things. Who do you think the stranger is that Nathan refers to? 
There's a lot of people that think that it's a picture of the enemy who walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom, may, whom he may devour. Do you remember a few weeks I told you, a few weeks ago I told you that our shift at first, at first our focus was the fact that Satan hated David and wanted to kill him so the kingdom would never come about. And ultimately our Savior Jesus would never be born. Well, now that the kingdom is established, the enemy's focus is not so much just on David, but now he wants to destroy the kingdom. And what would have happened here had this illegitimate child grown up is this child would have been the heir to the throne and Christ could not have been born from an illegitimate child. So you see, the battle is much bigger than David. But he reveals the lust after the lamb being adultery, the killing of the lamb showing cold-blooded sin and murder. And he lived in this deceived, unrighteous state for at least nine months until the word of God in the form of Nathan the prophet showed David the depths of his wickedness and his self-deception. And isn't that how it always is with us? The reason that we can fall in love with our desires is because you and you and me and you, we are so good at deceiving ourselves to thinking it's okay. This desire is good. And so the second part of the passage, Nathan starts off by saying, David, you think the man should be killed? Guess what? You're the man. And listen to what God says to him. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel. And I gave you the house of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have given you even more. Why have you despised or hated the word of your God to do what is evil in your sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me. David, you're a man after my own heart and you hated me when you did this. You have taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And we'll be talking about that starting next week. I will raise up evil out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. For you did this thing secretly against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, but the Lord will reveal it before all the sun. And David said to Nathan, you're right. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die, even though you wanted to pass judgment on the person who did this with death. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you will die. And then Nathan went away. So we see... David is convicted. And they go through all the things that he was given. David, I gave you all this stuff. I've clearly manifested my favor in you. I've given you all these blessings. I've given you everything you wanted, things you didn't even know you wanted. And I gave them all to you. And if it had not been enough, you could have come asked Heavenly Dad. And I would have given you even more. Let him ask of God. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men freely. We've studied that in James many times. And he says, if that weren't all enough, the things I give you, I'd have given you even more. 
I gave you the kingdom. But here's what you did instead. You murdered Uriah. You stole his wife. You made her your own wife. You deceived all of Israel. David, who do you think you are? And then God begins to talk about some of the consequences. Death will always be in your house through the sword. Adversity will come up against you from your own house. You will have shame because everybody will know what you did, David. And then lastly, your child with Bathsheba, that illegitimate child, that poor baby, he's going to have to die. But then there's a declaration of grace upon David. Yes, David, what you did sucks. It's garbage. I can't stand the fact that you did it. But I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you mercy. See, this is the real heavenly battle, guys. That child that was born out of the sin of David was the tool that the enemy wanted to use to destroy the line of Christ so that we would not be here today worshiping heavenly dad. That's the battle. Here, Satan's wiles and schemes, who he like, you know, he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may tear limb from limb. His schemes come head to head in a battle, a universal battle with the grace of God. Unfortunately, the scripture says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And it's funny how we see some similarities between the death of Christ so that we can have life and the death of this child so that we can have Jesus. So let's move on to the next part of the story. God causes David's illegitimate son to become ill. Now David does decide to plead with God. Maybe God will be gracious and maybe he won't allow this child to die. Maybe he'll allow the child to live. And he pleads in such an emotional way that his servants are concerned for his mental well-being. Then David hears of the death of his child and instead of their, their, their thought was, he's going to kill himself when this baby dies. That's what his servants were thinking. But instead what the scripture says is, David gets up, washes his face, puts on new clothes, eats and worships God. And they ask him, David, how could you do this? And David says something amazing. He says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now my child is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No. I shall go to him one day, but he will not return to me. And David's recognition of the temporal versus the eternal shows that he is beginning to get back in line with Heavenly Dad. Because see, what's happening is when we are in love with our passions, when we are in love with our desires, our lusts, our sins, our addictions, when we are in love with those things, the only thing we can focus on is the right now. But when we are in tune with heavenly, with heavenly God, we begin to have a perspective and a perception that is eternal and not just temporal. You begin to be able to think ahead and see things for what they really are. And it's interestingly that Bathsheba is called David's wife after the child was dead. 
Before that, he's called, she's called Uriah's wife. Then the child is dead. David brings her into his house. He marries her. And they have a son. Solomon. Who God loved, the scripture says. And Solomon becomes the king who expands the kingdom of David even further. He builds the temple and all these things, all these promises are beginning to be fulfilled through Solomon. And then finally, God gives David and Joab a victory. Remember that city that David was using as a ploy to kill Uriah? That city? God says, go up, tell Joab to finish the battle. I'm going to give you the city anyway. And what Joab does, it's interesting, Joab invites David. Joab gets to the city and he, and he besieges it till it's almost on the edge of falling apart. He knows that David is struggling because everybody in the kingdom knows what's going on with him. And, how. and so what Joab does is Joab says, David, you lead and you finish off the job because you need credibility again among the people. If I take it, they're going to say, look what Joab did, even though David was terrible. You're going to come in, you're going to finish the job, and the people will begin to love you again. So what is the point of this story? How do we take this story, this, this terrible story of David and Bathsheba and murdering Uriah, and then Nathan the prophet comes and all, and you know, David says, I've sinned. And how do we take this story and apply it to our lives? This ridiculous drama. I mean, it sounds like something right out of Hollywood. It sounds like an episode of Desperate Housewives. I mean, for real. See, look, in the midst of being head over heels in love with our sinfulness, when we're buried in our self-deception and we're making decisions that are about passion of desires and passion of lust and not passion for God, God's sovereign grace intervenes like Nathan did. After David, a man after God's own heart, sat in self-denial and sin for at least nine months. You see, the first thing I want you to recognize is when you are right with God, it's got nothing to do with you, nothing to do with your religion, nothing to do with your worship, nothing to do with your job, nothing to do with your prestige, nothing to do with your position, nothing to do with how you look around to other people. It has one thing. God intervenes. Even when you're a child of God stuck in sin, when you get out of it, it's not because of you. God's grace intervenes. David was a man. Do you think if David could be stuck in this sin for a year that you somehow are better than David? God's grace through Nathan the prophet and God's word had to intervene in David's life. That's what perseverance of the saints is about. What we believe is that when God saves you, when God transforms you, he will always do a good job of completing that work in you. God will never fail, no matter how strong Satan becomes in your life. If God has saved you, if God has called you, if God has transformed you, if God has redeemed you, he will intervene. And when he does, here's what it will look like. When God intervenes in our life like this, it's our chance to turn back on our corrupted love of sin and our self-deception and turn it to where it should be. In love with brokenness. See, 
Instead of being in love with our sinful desires, which destroy us, betray us, they devalue you as a person, we need to re-evaluate our passions and fall in love with brokenness, confession, confrontation. For that is where the true enjoyment of a relationship with Heavenly Dad comes from. It doesn't come from fake holiness, pseudo-righteousness. It doesn't even come from expressive worship. Did you know that? That's not where joy comes from. Joy doesn't come from liking music. Remember I told you guys a few weeks ago, oh, that song was anointed. That just means you like it. Enjoyment from Heavenly Dad doesn't come from expressive worship. It doesn't come from giving lots of money. It doesn't even come from serving on ministry teams. It doesn't come from spiritual arrogance that allows you to think that you can judge other people in their sin. No. True enjoyment with your relationship with Heavenly Dad comes from one place. Brokenness. Humility. Transparency. Vulnerability. But we hate it, don't we? Don't we really hate brokenness? We should love it and hate our desires, but in reality, we love our desires and hate brokenness because somehow we are deceived in our mind by thinking that it tastes bad. We think that humility and brokenness and confrontation will cost us too much. Because now, if we really love and embrace brokenness and transparency and humility, we have to give up our love of desire and lust and addiction and sinfulness and arrogance and possessions and money and fame, even if it's local fame. Remember the vacuum story I told you last week? I knew you guys were wondering, how did that end? How is he even a pastor today? You guys remember I told you I was working for the Hoover Vacuum Company and I was, you know, a freshman in college and I was coaching football full time and I was, you know, in school full time. And after about a month, I started fudging my timesheets and I would sometimes not even show up and fill out that I was there and I would get money. And my best friend and my roommate and the head coach of that team confronted me and said, hey, Joe, we got a football player on our team. He's our starting quarterback. You know him. I had a meeting with his parents and him today. He's not going to come to practice anymore, but he wants to keep starting. And I said, we got to cut him. He can't be on the team. And he said, well, Joe, that's exactly what you're doing to the Hoover Vacuum Company. He pulled a Nathan on me. <laughs> I didn't even know it. And when he did, it hit me square in the face. And I said, man, how did I get here? I'm in Bible college, for goodness sakes. I'm doing student ministry. I'm working with kids. And I'm telling them, teaching them how to have care. David, how did I? That was my friend's name. David, how did I get here? He says, well, Joe, you suck. <laughs> he says, but we all do. I said, you're right. I was wrong. So I went to the dad. The, remember, I told you that it was a dad of one of the players on our team that had hired me. And I went to him and I said, Jeff, I got to confess to you. I've been stealing money for a month and a half. I haven't been going to work. I didn't sell the vacuum cleaners I said I did. And I'm crying, I'm bawling, you know, I'm like, I'm embarrassed, right? I'm, I'm just so embarrassed. I wasn't like, oh man, 
I've been stealing vacuums, yo. It was like, I'm crying and I'm broke. I can't believe, Jeff, I'm so, I'm so embarrassed. I, I betrayed your trust. I betrayed the trust of the team. And, oh. and I said, I got to pay you back. He says, no, Joe, I appreciate you. Can, you know, I, have, I have to terminate you. I said, no, 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 I understand. Please, please fire me so I feel a little bit better. Don't give me the grace of keeping me on the job, please. I don't want that. But I paid him back. I went and took out a student loan. I owed him 3700 bucks. I paid it back. And for two months, I struggled to pay my rent, to buy my Raymond noodles. But I'll tell you this, I was on cloud nine. That was one of the happiest times of ministry in my life. Because I had been relieved of the burden of my sinful desires, which I somehow fell into and lived in deception under for a month and a half. That's why David wrote in the psalm that Megan read, let me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken rejoice. You know what he's talking about bones? He's not talking about breaking your legs. He's not a mobster. He's talking about the spiritual bones of pride. God, make me joyful and glad that you crush my pride. For you do not desire religion, or else I give it. You don't desire expressive worship. That's what those two things kind of mean. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you don't hate. You love. First Peter 5, 6-10, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He will exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Isn't that neat how God puts those together in the New Testament? See how it fits David's story? And after you have suffered a while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, not you, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You know, as I began to study this scripture and this concept of brokenness way back in 99, transparency and real humility began to become so apparent to me that the concepts of it changed my daily walk with God. Remember how I told you a few weeks ago when we were talking about David dancing in his underwear, I said, if I, I wish if I could keep you guys from throwing up that I could take my shirt off and preach my sermon. Just, just so you guys know how much I don't really care what you think about my relationship with God. My relationship with God is very coarse. My relationship with God 
is very transparent. My relationship with God is very um, offensive, like David's was. If you knew all the conversations that I have with God and the words that are in them, you would be very, maybe you'd be encouraged. I'm not even as bad as Pastor Joe. That's awesome. Because God has helped me realize my relationship with him cannot be religious. It cannot be ornate. It cannot be dressed in a three-piece suit. Although that's out of style now, right? So two-piece suit. It has to be organic. That's why we strive to have organic worship in the garden. So... This is my prayer journal that I, I have like some checklists that I pray through every day, right? And I've shared some of this with you before, but look at the one to the, next, to, next to the bottom. Every day, I go to God and say, God, keep my heart broken and humble. Every day, I pray that because I know my personal propensity is to be arrogant. Sometimes I can even get arrogant in my humility, I'm good. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? I'm so humble. I'm so in tune with God. Man. God, please. And I, I, I beg him, God, please. I love the high that I get off of being broken and humble. I have a couple things after my journal slide, but let me just read this to you. So what I wrote in 99 as I was studying 2 Samuel 12. I hate being caught, but I love when God brings about circumstances that make me quiet. Y'all know that feeling like when you realize, oh, I made a mistake and you just shut up? I love that. Doesn't happen often, but for a second. When he reveals my sinfulness and self-deception, it forces me to the love of the gracious, forgiving Heavenly Dad. When the light flips on, suddenly I am made aware of huge burdens I carry, and the relief of those burdens is a high no foolish drug could ever bring. Because it's those times of sweet pain that remind me that I'm still connected to the Father. Because the scripture says he loves whom he corrects. And if God is correcting me, that means he loves me. That means he's my dad and I'm connected. And Satan can't cut that cord. So it seems, and this is what I'm going to close with, it seems most of us spend time chasing that high on life. That feeling that we get from a relationship or a possession or business or substance abuse, or sinfulness, or fulfilling of lust, or self-deception, it forces us to realize that. But we don't want to be humble, or broken, or reliant. But in reality, if you want that elusive joy, that elusive peace in life, church, listen to me. As your pastor, and I love you, and I'm trying to make sure you understand this, stop trying to relieve your burdens through stupid, silly, sinful, worldly pleasures. Because I'm telling you, 
True happiness can only be found when we finally understand brokenness, humility, transparency, and reliance on Heavenly Dad and His grace through Jesus Christ who died so that we could approach the throne of God while we're dirty. Even if that dirt includes some of the crap that David did. You see, pain from when you realize your passions have betrayed you is actually the pain that leads to peace with Heavenly Dad. So today as a church, let's stop this stupid obsession over our desires to fulfill our passions and our lusts and our selfishness and our addictions and our cravings And let's start craving and obsessing over being broken and being humble before God. Crave it. Ask for it. Beg for it. Every single day. You can't get a more simple, easy to fulfill, practical relationship application than that, can you, church? Let's obsess instead of over our desires, with brokenness. Because it's brokenness that God loves more than anything. He even loves it more than when you worship Him.